This month we look forward to a white Christmas with Charles Dickens. An historical Christmas with Samuel Pepys. A crabby Christmas with Pam Ayres. But most importantly, we look forward to a happy Christmas with all of us and the December 2022 issue of Look Here. Fonya Carlton, standing in for Pippa, who sadly can't be with us this time. And I'm Stephen Buckley. And with us for this 2022 Christmas edition of Look Here are Barney Burnham. Hello. Christine Buckley. Hello. Evelyn Brock. Hello. Phil Lee. Hello. Catherine Neal. Hello. Jane Fairs. Hello. And with his team, leafing through the Guinness Book of Records that he was given last Christmas, is Barry Hurd. How would you fancy a ginormous Christmas dinner? The largest ever was recorded as a 9.6 kilogram festive feast for one, comprised of all the traditional trimmings of turkey, carrots, parsnips, broccoli, cauliflower, roast potatoes, pigs in blankets and 25 sprouts. This dinner was served by Ashley and Louise Gargan, at the Duck Inn in Oakenshaw, Worcester, UK, on the 24th of December 2013. Alan? The record for most lights on one Christmas tree is 194,672 on the 10th of December 2010. The most expensively dressed Christmas tree was valued at £6,975,880,000. It was erected and displayed by the Emirates Palace in Abu Dhabi from 16th to the 29th of December 2010. Covered in 181 items of jewellery, it stood 13.1 metres, that is 43.2 feet high. We'll be hearing more Christmas records from Barry and his team later. Well known not for making but for keeping records is Samuel Pepys. And this is his diary entry for Christmas Day 1666. Lay pretty long in bed and then rise, leaving my wife desirous to sleep, having sat up till four this morning, seeing her maids make mince pies. I to church, where our parson Mills made a good sermon. Then home and dined well on some good ribs of beef roasted and mince pies. Only my wife, brother and Barker, and plenty of good wine of my own, and my heart full of true joy, and thanks to God Almighty for the goodness of my condition at this day. After dinner, I began to teach my wife and Barker my song, It Is Decreed, which pleases me mightily, as now I have Mr Hingston's bass. Then out, and walked alone on foot to Temple, it being a fine frost, thinking to have seen a play all alone, but their missing of any bills concluded there was none, and so back home, and there with my brother reducing the names of all my books to an alphabet which kept us till seven or eight at night, and then to supper, W. Hewer with us, and pretty merry, and then to my chamber to enter this day's journal only, and then to bed.' 
bells, especially church bells, have been associated with Christmas for a very long time around the world. In the Anglican and Catholic churches, the church day starts at sunset. So a service on Christmas Eve after sunset is traditionally the first service of Christmas Day. In churches that have a bell or bells, they are often rung to signal the start of this service. In some churches in the UK, it is traditional that the largest bell in the church is rung four times in the hour before midnight, and then at midnight all the bells are rung in celebration. In the Catholic Church, Christmas and Easter are the only times that Mass is allowed to be held at midnight. It's traditional that at both midnight Masses, the church and altar bells too in many cases are rung while the priest says the Gloria. Having a Mass at midnight at Christmas dates back to the early church, when it was believed that Jesus was born at midnight, although there has never been any proof of this. A lot of churches have midnight services on Christmas Eve, although not every church will have a Mass or Communion as part of the service. In many Catholic countries, such as France, Spain and Italy, midnight Mass is very important and everyone tries to go. In Victorian times, it was very fashionable to go carol singing with small handbells to play the tune of the carol. Sometimes there would be only the bells and no singing. Perhaps the most famous bells at Christmas now are the ones in the song Jingle Bells. It was written by James Lord Pierpoint in 1850 in Medford, Massachusetts, under the original title of One Horse Open Sleigh. It was first published in the USA in September 1857 as a Thanksgiving song, not a Christmas one. But it soon became associated with Christmas because of the snowy lyrics. And many choirs were singing it at Christmas in the 1860s and 1870s. It was first recorded in 1889. Often, only the first verse and chorus are now sung. The other, rather unfulfilling verses are about racing the sledges and having accidents. Actually, not a lot of fun at all. Uh, we have an object, looks like a satellite. Uh, Jingle Bells was, however, the first song to be broadcast from space in December 1965, when the astronauts Tom Stafford and Wally Shearer said they had spotted a sleigh in space. They then took out a harmonica and sleigh bells, which they had smuggled onto the Gemini 6 spacecraft, and played and sang the song to mission control. Back to Earth... And Jane has also been travelling north. Have you ever wondered whether Santa ever got your letter? Well, it's probably here, at the North Pole. You can actually go and visit him here. Bit of a long trek, but worth it. All that snow. Mind you, your belief in Santa might take a knock or two. You see, he lives with about 2,700 other people, about a 15-minute drive from Fairbanks on the Richardson Highway in Alaska. The Christmas spirit is kept alive here all the year round. 
You thought it was only Tesco or Sainsbury who started Christmas in August. Wrong. You can buy all the decorations and trimmings all year round here, even if it is 80 degrees in July. You can drive down streets like Santa Claus Lane, Kris Kringle Drive and Mistletoe Lane and stay the night in the Santa Suite at the North Pole Hotel. The main attraction is, of course, Santa Claus House. The sprawling store holds endless aisles of Christmas ornaments and toys. You can meet a live Santa to listen to your Christmas wishes, a 42 feet high statue of Santa overlooking the Richardson Highway. That helps if you get lost, I suppose, although it is unlikely. And there are also walls covered with Dear Santa letters from children all over the world. The town, needless to say, comes alive in December with the annual Winter Festival, which draws crowds with activities, ice sculptures and fireworks. During this time of the year, it's not unusual for national TV newscasts to broadcast live from the Santa Claus House. At the North Pole Post Office, located on Santa Claus Lane, of course, more than 400,000 pieces of mail arrive annually, simply addressed to Santa Claus, North Pole, Alaska. And each year, teams of community volunteers work to respond to each letter. Can't make it to the North Pole this year to meet the man himself? You can order personalised Santa letters from Santa's Letters and Gifts, along with official Good Girls and Boys certificates, only for those on your nice list, of course, and mailed directly from the North Pole. Besides the novelty of seeing Santa any time of the year, North Pole City has received some recognition for its restaurants after being featured on a Food Network's Diners, Drive-Ins and Dives, bit far to go for dinner. The place was first settled or homesteaded in 1944 and given its holiday-themed name by a development company, what else, selling property and hoping to attract a toy manufacturer that could advertise products as being made in North Pole. The name stuck, although the toy factory never materialised. North Pole's association with the spirit of Christmas was begun in earnest in the 1950s by Conrad Miller. I wonder whether he saw the film White Christmas. The young trading post operator was well known in rural Alaska for playing Santa Claus for young children in Alaskan villages. When he set up a trading post in North Pole, he named it Santa Claus House. And today, the sprawling store beckons in thousands of travellers. Maybe you might like to get your woolies together and visit sometime. And where would Santa be without his reindeer? But according to poet Timothy Toker, help is wanted. Santa needs a new reindeer. The first bunch has grown old. Dasher has arthritis. Comet hates the cold. Prancer's sick of staring at dancers big behind. Cupid married Blitzen and Donder lost his mind. Dancer's mad at Vixen for stepping on his toes. Vixen's being thrown out. She laughed at Rudolph's nose. If you are a reindeer, we hope you will apply. There is just one tricky part. You must know how to fly. Of course, all reindeer will know what to expect every year on Christmas Eve. 
But how would it be for them, indeed all of us, if the wish of the 1970s group Wizard, that it could be Christmas every day, came true? Evelyn reports the predictions of mathematician duo Hannah Fry and Tom Evans based on a 365-day Christmas. Since we Brits normally keep our decorations up for around a month, we'd need to replenish our tinsel supplies 12 times as frequently as we do now. That means festive productions who currently make 600,000 metres of tinsel a day, would have to up their daily output to 7.2 million metres. Of course, all that tinsel would be useless without a steady supply of Christmas trees to dangle it on. Currently, the UK buys 8 million trees a year compared to 40 million in the USA and 42 million in the rest of Europe. Since each tree needs seven years to grow, given that there are 350 million fir trees being grown on Christmas tree farms in North America alone, if we ration ourselves to one new tree a month, we'll be okay until at least May or so. The daily festive feast could cause even more upheaval. Each year, the British public buys and eats 10 million turkeys for our Christmas dinners. From hatching to table, turkeys live for six months. So around 1.8 billion turkeys would need rearing and housing at any one time. The University of New Hampshire suggests each turkey should have at least six square feet of covered shelter. That translates into a turkey coop of 1,003 square kilometres, around two-thirds the size of Greater London. If all turkeys were free-range, though, we'd also need to factor in a hundred square feet of pasture for each bird. This translates into a turkey farm of 17,726 square kilometres, which would cover all of London and the home counties and no doubt be the envy of the world. Our GDP might slip a bit if almost everyone stopped going to work. There's also the small matter of having nowhere to shop for the presents. 1.8 billion turkeys running amok and a generation of children growing up with no work ethic or sense of discipline. But let's not get bogged down by trivialities like that. Barry has some more historical Christmas records. The record for a chain cracker pool was set by Vodafone in 2011. It was an impressive 566 cracker simultaneously popped in an unbroken chain organised to support ITV's Tex Santa charity campaign. A gathering of 3,473 people were recorded 
wearing holiday jumpers and it was achieved at the men's basketball game on the 19th of December 2015. In December 2014, the UK airline EasyJet achieved a Guinness World Record for the highest altitude carol concert during a flight from London Gatwick to Geneva. The concert lasted 15 minutes, a record-setting altitude of 39,000 feet. On the night before Christmas, a child in a house as the whole family slept behaved just like a mouse and crept on soft toes down red-carpeted stairs. Her hand held the paw of her favourite bear. The Christmas tree posed with its lights in its arms, newly tinselled and baubled with glittering charms, flirting in flickers of crimson and green against the dull glass of the mute TV screen. But the child who was up and long out of her bed saw no vision of sugar plums dancing her head. She planned to discover for once and for all if Santa Claus was real. So she took up position behind a big chair that was close to the fireplace. Four stockings hung there. Quite soon, there'd be one tangerine in each toe, and she'd be the child who would see and would know. Then a shooting star whizzed down the sky from the north. It was fizzing and sparkling as it fell to the earth, and growing in size, a young hare in a field gazed up at the sky where it brightened and swelled. It turned into sleigh made of silver and gold, pulled by reindeer whose breath shiffened out in the cold. With bells on their antlers and bells round each hoof, then clatter, they landed on you-know-whose roof. It's a fact that a faraway satellite dish which observes us from space cannot know what we wish. Its eyes' empty socket films famine and greed, but cannot see Santa Claus on Christmas Eve. He was dressed all in red, from his head to his toes. Also red was the Christmassy glow of his nose. His beard was as white as the flakes that fell down on rich and on poor in this ordinary town. His eyes twinkled like tinsel and starlight and frost, and they knew how to give without counting the cost. He'd slung on his back a huge sackful of toys to lug down the chimneys of good girls and boys. The shadow of reindeer were patterns on snow which gift-wrapped the garden three storeys below. Dasher snored and Blitzen poured hard at the roof. They'd a long night before them and that was the truth. All this noise woke the child who had fallen asleep. So she popped up her head and made sure she could peep without being seen at whoever it was who stood in the fireplace. <gasps> wow, Santa Claus. Though she lived in an age where celebrity ruled, and where most of the people were easily fooled by TV and fashion, by money and cars, the little girl knew that here was a real star. Then she watched as the room filled with magic and light, as the spirit of Christmas made everything bright, and suddenly presents were heaped by the tree, and she didn't wonder which ones are for me. For the best gift of all, is to truly believe in the wonderful night that we call Christmas Eve, 
when adults remember of all childhood's laws this time in December will bring Santa Claus. Santa turned and he winked at her, then disappeared with a laugh up the chimney with soot on his beard. She ran to the window and watched as his sleigh took off from her roof and he sped on his way. And as long as she lived, she would never forget how he flew as the moon showed him in silhouette from rooftop to rooftop and called from his flight, Happy Christmas to all, and to all a good night. That was from Another Night Before Christmas by poet Carol Ann Duffy and read by John Plush. The Christmas magazine wouldn't be complete without at least one piece by Gervais Finn, the school's inspector turned author and broadcaster. Catherine. Every year at Christmas time, Dad takes me to the pantomime, where raucous children scream and shout and clap and cheer and jump about. The noise, it drives me quite insane, and every year it is the same. When I see cinders in the prints, I sit and sulk and scowl and wince. The ugly sisters are inane, and there's nothing funny about the dame. I shake my head and moan and groan and beg that I be taken home. It's childish, but I have to go, because my father loves it so. This is Laurie Lee. Barney. Tonight the wind gnaws with teeth of glass. The jackdaw shivers in caged branches of iron. The stars have talons. There is hunger in the mouth of vole and badger. Silver agonies of breath in the nostril of the fox. Ice on the rabbit's paw. Tonight has no moon. No food for the pilgrim. The fruit tree is bare, the rose bush a thorn, and the ground is bitter with stones. But the mole sleeps, and the hedgehog lies curled in a womb of leaves. The bean and the wheat seed hug their germs in the earth, and the stream moves under the ice. Tonight there is no moon, but a new star opens like a silver trumpet over the dead. Tonight, in a nest of ruins, the blessed babe is laid, and the fir tree warms to a bloom of candles, and the child lights his lantern, stares at his tinseled toy, and our hearts and hearths smolder with live ashes. In the blood of our grief, the cold earth is suckled. In our agony, the womb convulses its seed. In the first cry of anguish, the child's first breath is born. Here's Pam Eyre's more Scrooge-like take on Christmas. Christine. I've got my own nativity set with figures carved from wood. I put it on the sideboard every year. It looks quite good. Mary's dressed in blue. See, there's a little seat for her. And a crib for baby Jesus with his frankincense and myrrh. 
Now I fully understand that all good things come to an end, and I must scrap my little set for fear it may offend all the Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims, Trappists, Sikhs, well, all the flock who might see my baby Jesus and be paralysed with shock. Forget the Christmas dinner, as my appetite is small for a poor old shut-up turkey which has had no life at all. They are created creatures, though their plight we cannot see, and though they may be cheap, they don't look bootiful to me. Hear the rasping of the tinsel and the rattle of the cash. The streets are full of shoppers and the shops are full of trash. Christmas is a-coming, tally-ho and toodle There's a Santa on the chimney and his leg is down the flue. There's a reindeer on the rooftop, there are sleigh bells on the shed, there is flickering and flashing and they're going white and red. The silent starry night is by illumination rent. I know God said I am the light, but is this what he meant? See my neighbour's house, there's an electric yuletide log, a robin and a snowman and a, yes, Kermit the Frog. The local power station, it is standing all aglow and it's heading for a meltdown like Chernobyl long ago. I am going down the garden. I am going down the shed. If anybody wants me, you can tell them I have fled. I might emerge on Boxing Day if common sense prevails and I'll buy you all a present. They'll be cheaper in the sales. First broadcast by the BBC in 2006... Anton Lesser and Anna Maidley star in Phil Lee's latest discovery in our Talking Books library. A historical novel for you this time, and it's called Venus in Copper by Lindsay Davis, the third in a lengthy series centred on Marcus Didius Falco, a retired Roman soldier turned private investigator, and his difficult but engaging relationship with Helena Justina, daughter of a senator. She is therefore far removed from Marcus's social class, an aspect which lends an unusual element to the relationship. This is a BBC Radio 4 dramatisation in six episodes rather than a reading, and it features Anton Lesser as Marcus and Anna Maidley as Helena. Now, you may remember Anna Maidley because she played Mrs Hall in the recent All Creatures Great and Small programmes on Channel 5. Both are particularly good, entirely convincing in their roles, and this is important in giving the story weight and credibility. The supporting cast is excellent too. The story is set in Rome in AD 71. Marcus, fresh out of prison, is hired by a wealthy family of freed slaves, the Hortensii, to investigate one Severina, a fascinatingly complex woman who is about to marry one of their number. Is that a problem? They think so, because her previous three husbands have all died in circumstances that can only be described as mysterious. As nothing that involves Marcus is ever straightforward, it all goes haywire from there on. Murder, revenge, dodgy property developers, and I mean dodgy, a massive turbot, a talking parrot, and an unexpected visit from the Emperor's son. What's not to get excited about? I enjoy the plots of these well-crafted stories and the sense that they give me of ancient Rome, away from the strictly historical. Although, having said that, they do seem to me to carry an authentic view of the period without smothering the listener with all those encumbrances of a barely disguised historical research that some novels convey. The dramatisation is spare, crisp and effective. Here's an extract from the introduction. Greetings. 
Marcus Didius Falco, at your service. Private informer, investigator to you. If you need references, ask the Emperor. I'd just done a big job for him. Went very well. So well, his chief spy got jealous and threw me in prison. Accused me of stealing some imperial lead. Those ingots are going to haunt me forever. I'd have given them the money if anyone had bothered to ask. Still, it wasn't all bad, rotting in jail. I had company, a very friendly rat. But before I had time to get to know him better, my mother bailed me out. I owe a lot to the women in my life. My girlfriend Helena had been paying my rent. There are three CDs, all in good order, and the total running time is around three hours. I hope that, like me, you'll find it time well spent. Any downsides? Yes, I find the musical interludes a little repetitive, but that may be because there are a number of episodes stitched together here, whereas the original broadcast was weekly. If you'd like to borrow this audiobook, let us know at Colin Chance House and we'll send it to you as soon as it becomes available. In the meantime, whatever you're listening to, and however you're listening to it, we wish you an enjoyable and rewarding time. The most valuable Christmas card in the world was sold at auction in Devizes, Wiltshire for £20,000 back in November 2001. Measuring 5 by 3 inches, it was bought by an anonymous bidder and was originally sent by Sir Henry Cole, who was a Bath-born businessman, to his grandmother in 1843. and is hand-coloured by the London illustrator John Colcott Horsley. Here's another world record for your Christmas stocking. In 2016, a Canadian gentleman by the name of Buddy Z Fisher peeled five carrots in 24.71 seconds. You may not have known that. Nor may you have known just how useful a carrot could be in wartime. Jane. The Christmases during World War II in the UK were very different from peacetime. Many people were not in their own homes. Lots of men went into the army, while most children from cities were evacuated into the countryside, as houses in cities were bombed and destroyed. Decorations could be hard to get, as most things were scarce and or rationed. Real Christmas trees were hard to find, especially in cities as wood was used for construction. There weren't many balloons, as most of the rubber plantations were in the war zone in the Far East. The Women's Voluntary Service and other groups published in papers and magazines instructions for homemade decorations made from scraps and leftovers, such as paper lanterns and paper chains made from old magazines or wallpaper and threaded on cotton. Paper was strictly rationed, so every bit of it was used and reused. Greenery, like holly and ivy, was still available, and you could also use the Chinese lantern plant, Physalis alkigengai. But other unusual decorations came from the sky. German planes released chaff, that's to say lots of strips of metal foil, to try and confuse our radar. People used them to make shiny decorations. Before the war, many toys were imported from Germany, but obviously that all stopped. Many children lost all of their toys as thousands of homes were completely destroyed. 
So replacement toys were made from what you had lying around. Pipe cleaners, wire, matchboxes, cigarette packets and cards, matchsticks, cotton reels and odd bits of material could all be used to make furniture for dolls' houses. One tin and the lids from four other tins could make a model car. Games like Pin the Tail on the Donkey became Pin the Moustache on Hitler. During the war, going to church became more attractive. People were looking for hope and comfort, although others found the war put them off religion altogether. Christmas cards became very popular as a way for families, often split up or in the forces, to keep in touch. The military forces used air graphs, where letters to be sent abroad were photographed onto film. Just the film was sent to the destination country, and then it was developed, and the letters printed off and put in the normal post. This saved lots of space, taking things to and from the front line, as you could get up to 1,500 letters on one roll of film. Most food was rationed, so there wasn't the huge range of groceries we enjoy today. However, farmers could take as much milk as they wanted from their own cows, so they never went short of butter or cream. A lot of fruit and vegetables were eaten, as people were encouraged to grow their own, notably carrots, which turned out to be very versatile. In addition to carrot soup and carrot cake, it could also be made into sweets in the form of candied carrot and even carrot fudge. Not just carrots, but other vegetables too were added to things like mince pies, Christmas pudding and Christmas cake, as although people were given extra food rations by the government to help them celebrate, it was often very hard to get hold of things like dried fruit. Only one family in ten would be able to get a turkey or goose, so stuffed rabbit was often served as an alternative. In cities like London, many slept in underground caves, tunnels and air raid shelters to be protected from bombs and rockets. At Christmas in 1944, Chislehurst Caves under London housed up to 15,000 people. It became an underground town with water and sanitation, a chapel, cinema and hospital. Some people lived in the caves for months. The blackout meant that houses were fined if they showed even a little bit of light from their windows. So there were no street lamps and certainly no Christmas light displays. I wonder how Santa coped. <laughs> So, did you find that tune familiar? I can be pretty sure you know it very well. You probably sang it at school and numerous other times in your life, but you didn't recognise it? Well, I did cheat a bit. It was the first eight bars of the very well-known carol We Three Kings of Orient are, but the orchestra was playing it backwards. All the right notes, but in reverse order. This is how we're used to hearing it.
you'll notice that it ends with... And the snippet I played you at the start begins with those same notes in reverse. The rest just follows on in the same way. Starting at the end and finishing at the beginning, it's what's known as a retrograde and has been practised by many composers since before 1500, including Haydn and Mozart and, of course, Bach, who naturally perfected the form. Not that I would compare what you just heard with Bach or Haydn or Mozart come to that. Here's another carol. The first four bars of Good King Wenceslas, but reverse the order of the notes and you get... Not perhaps the most satisfying of melodies, but not unpleasant. The composer, Edmund Rubberer, pointed out that this is, of course, a purely mental concept, as music can never do anything but go forwards, even if the given tune is reversed. The different relationships set up by reversing the direction of a theme make it completely unrecognisable, and when a composer indulges in this device, the disclosure of it makes not the slightest difference to our appreciation of the music. Some tunes are almost as recognisable played backwards as forwards. But can you work out which carol this is? it is again. Just try to recall the last six notes and hum them in reverse order. The last six notes were Reverse them, and you get... In the bleak midwinter. This one's my favourite. I think that's a really nice tune, and it's the retrograde of, well, what do you think? Listen again.
the last eight notes were... which the right way round is... John Plush Another attempt to overturn a traditional Christmas favourite now in this short poem by Martin Parker. Stephen. It may be sedition, but the Christmas tradition of being cooped up to adore a babe in a stable while being unable to go out and graze is a bore. For me, there's no mileage in wet hay and silage. I'm hungry and fed up as hell. And after a tenure of two whole millennia, I'm fed up with Christmas as well. But now there's some hope for us livestock. The Pope says we're surplus to Christmas festivity, which seems at first glance to afford me the chance to resume my most favourite activity. So I'm done with the lowing. This year I am going to kick down the old stable door, thus leaving the mother and baby to maybe enjoy their first cowpat-free straw. It was Pope Benedict who wrote in his book, The Infancy Narratives, that there's no evidence that any cattle were present at the birth of Jesus. They're more likely to have been outside in the landlord's garden eating his grass. And talking of gardens, I met up with Mike Lane in my garden the other day and we started getting excited about Christmas. December. Can't believe it. I don't know where the year's gone. It's just flown by. And the seasons are very different to how they used to be. And is that going to play havoc with all our lovely plants? Well, yeah. I mean, I've already seen primroses and certain things already out in flower, um, which is a very unusual, really, for the time of the year, mm. considering they're normally sort of March time. And if we get a frost in... January, February, it's going to nip them a bit, isn't it? Yes, so maybe a lack of things in blossom next year. So that could affect our fruit produce for next year? Possibly. Things aren't dying back, are they? No. no. The geraniums kept going and the dahlias kept going. And the leaves, it's taken a long time for them to start to come down. It has. As normal, there's all the maintenance to be doing this time of the year. Uh, Cutting back the herbaceous plants, uh, edging of borders tidying everything up. How do you feel about sort of leaving some of the hedges and the ivy and things like that for the wildlife? Yeah, I'm, I'm sometimes quite happy just to say, right, let's not worry about the shrubs, get them cut before, yes. the, before the nesting season. Yes. And also try to encourage birds into the garden by sticking out some, some, food. some food. Yes. Should I go out and buy special food for them? I tend to go down to Wilkinson's on the High Street in Worcester. Yes. Uh, they've got a great selection of various nuts and bird feeders and, and bird seeds. feed and yeah. seed. So you do have to be careful what you give them, though, yes. don't you? You can't yes. just give them any old bits no, and bobs. No, no, no. Other jobs we could be doing, making sure our pots are empty and they've been washed out. Oh. It is a horrible job. It's but disgusting. You're right, but if you, <laughs> if you don't do it, you could potentially transfer a disease. So, 
Do you think we should use washing up liquid or just no, water? I, I would just use water. And a brush. And a brush. Yeah. So some of my pots have got feet. OK. Built so if in. we do get some heavy rain, which we may do in January and February, then the water will freely drain away. Stops the, the pots then getting, uh, getting the frost later on in the year and then crack. Oh. Yeah, so as, as we kind of move through the month, we've got a, quite a large celebration. Well, I was wondering when you were going to get to that bit. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and, and we were thinking of not having a Christmas tree this year. So what, what oh, are the alternatives? Okay. So over the last couple of years, there's been various plants that have been shaped as Christmas trees uh-huh. uh, and grown in pots. Um, slightly smaller than, than your average Christmas tree. Things like a, a, there's a rosemary christmas tree which will grow up to about two to three foot oh that sounds perfect uh, and it's shaped as a triangle and the nice thing about rosemary is that you can touch it yes uh, and yes. you get the fragrance and the smell and they um, grow well in pots and they do grow well in yeah. pots um just keep an eye obviously if you do dare to put the heat in on <laughs> in this uh, crisis um they can try out quite quickly yes so yes. something to be aware of mm-hmm. uh, so would i be able to find that sort of thing in a garden center or yes yeah yep, there are certain garden centers which are now selling them and the other alternative would be a bay tree ah i have a bay tree ah good. it's about one and a half feet tall quite bushy yep. yeah quite healthy yep. looking and yep. it's in a pot so I could bring that in. The bay tree smells fantastic. Um, the leaves are quite nice to... You can use them in your yeah, stews. Exactly. And then obviously to try to get some other scent into the house, I'd recommend buying some bulbs, some of the daffodil bulbs. Oh, n- Narcissi. Uh, Narcissi, mm, yeah. Pretty yeah. smell nice. Uh, a lot of the garden centres are stocking them now. And the garden centre will have them all planted up, won't they, so that they'll flower about Christmas time. Yes, yeah. Yeah. So you can just go in and buy them in. and then yeah, just yeah. stick yeah. it in your house. So Christmas decorations. Um, over the last couple of years I've been trying to keep things sort of natural. So, oh, yes. so we've yes. been collecting pine cones to try to create some sort of Christmas baubles or something like that. Have you thought about any sort of natural Christmas decorations which, which you enjoy making? Or? I shall probably make a garland for our fireplace. Okay. Um, ivy. Okay. Or some fern. I've got plenty of ivy. Um, and I have some ferns. Yeah. Herbs actually herbs. would be rather nice, wouldn't it? Like the rosemary. Yeah. I quite like to do that. And yep. then put candles on the top of the mantel shelf. Yep. That sounds good. Away from the greenery, of course. Yeah. <laughs> and I do have some pine cones. We have a lot to get on with. Yes. And then two months' time, we can finally get this tree planted. Oh, yes. Yeah, yes. your fruit tree. It's been and ordered. And it should be with us by January time. Fantastic. So we can try to get this tree in before, before the spring. So on that note, I'd like to wish you a happy Christmas. And a very Merry Christmas to you and your family as well. Mary. Right, let's go and have some sherry. Yay! And a mince pie. It's hard to imagine Christmas without mistletoe. But mistletoe isn't just a popular Christmas plant like poinsettia or holly. It's a parasite that attacks living trees. Technically, mistletoes, there are over 1,000 species found throughout the world, are actually hemiparasites. This means they obtain a portion of their energy through photosynthesis and the rest is extracted from other plants. Mistletoe species have evolved to plant themselves on hosts ranging from pine trees to cacti. 
but the species most commonly associated with European-based mistletoe mythologies, like kissing beneath it at Christmas, are typically found on large deciduous trees like oaks. The plant sends its tiny roots into the bark's cambium layer, where it siphons off water and nutrients, slowly weakening the tree. A mature tree can withstand a small amount of mistletoe with no problem, but if it spreads profusely, the tree will eventually die as the life is literally sucked out of it. However, mistletoe doesn't take out whole forests like some diseases, just a tree here and there. Ecologists actually view mistletoe as an important part of a healthy ecosystem, as the berries are a major food source for birds who also find the dense foliage useful for nesting. And the dead trees become purchase for raptors. Mistletoe reproduces by seeds just like any other plant, but has evolved special adaptations to keep its seeds from falling to the ground, where they would be unable to sprout and develop into a mature plant. If you squeeze open the whitish semi-translucent berries, by the way, don't eat the fruit as some species are poisonous, you'll find that the seeds are incredibly sticky. They're covered with a glue-like substance called viskin, so they stick to whatever they fall on. They mostly fall on branches high up in the trees because the berries are a favourite wintertime snack for birds who then excrete the seeds where they roost. The English word for the plant is derived from a defunct Anglo-Saxon dialect. Apparently, having noticed that mistletoe often sprouts from bird droppings on tree branches, the words for dung, mistle, and twig, tan, were conjoined, and the mashup, mistletan, evolved over time into mistletoe. Historically, mistletoe has been used to treat infertility, epilepsy, hypertension, arthritis, and many other ailments. In modern times, it has gained a reputation as an anti-cancer herb, and while numerous studies have been conducted to look into this claim, there is little in the way of conclusive evidence regarding its efficacy. Still, pharmaceutical preparations of mistletoe are available in Switzerland, the Netherlands and the UK. Kate the world's tallest cut Christmas tree remains unbeaten since 1950. It was a 67.36 metre, that's 221 feet, Douglas fir, or Tsudotska menzaisi, and was erected at Seattle Northgate Shopping Centre, Washington, USA, in December of that year. Earlier, we heard a Christmas poem by Gervais Finn. In his work as a schools inspector in the Dales, he collected many, many stories of school nativity plays. Here are two of them. Evelyn. It is often the three kings who steal the show, and the highlight of one nativity was with their entrance. Someone had really gone to town on the costumes for the little boys who came in clutching their gifts tightly. They were resplendent in gold and silver outfits topped by large bejeweled crowns that shone brilliantly under the stage lights. 
I am the king of the north, said one little boy, kneeling before the manger and laying down a brightly wrapped box. I bring you gold. I am the king of the south, said the second, kneeling before the manger and laying down a large coloured jar. I bring you myrrh. I am the king of the east, said the third and smallest child, kneeling before the manger and laying down a silver bowl. And Frank sent this. In another school, the play opened in the traditional fashion, with Mary and Joseph setting off for Bethlehem. Joseph, a confident little boy in large glasses, spoke his lines clearly and loudly. Holding Mary's hand, he gently led her across the small stage. Things didn't go so well when the innkeeper appeared. He was a sturdily built child with spiky ginger hair and his two front teeth missing. It was clear he had a number of family members present that afternoon, for there were adoring woos and ahs whenever he opened his mouth. Before Joseph could even inquire whether there might be room for them at the inn, the little bruiser, arms folded tightly over his chest and chin jutting out, announced, There's no room! We've travelled far and... began Joseph. There's no room, repeated the innkeeper, even louder. But, started Joseph, did you not hear me? The cross innkeeper bellowed. I said there was no room. You can go round the back in the barn. A barn, repeated Mary. We can't go in a barn. There's nowhere else, said the innkeeper. Take it or leave it. At this point, the little boy caught sight of an elderly woman in the middle of the front row. It was obviously his granny. He gave a huge gap-toothed grin and tinkled the air with his fingers. The old lady, rather unhelpfully, smiled and waved back. This continued for what appeared an age. Shane, came the teacher's disembodied voice from off stage. Shane, come off! The innkeeper continued to smile and wave. The voice from the wings was now more insistent. Shane Merriweather, get off that stage right now! The child was finally prevailed upon to exit stage left, but did so with a flourish, smiling and waving, like a famous actor receiving the plaudits of a smitten audience. Things then went smoothly until the arrival of the three kings. I bring you gold, said the first child laying a small golden box at Mary's feet and bowing low. I bring you myrrh, said the second, 
laying a coloured jar at Mary's feet and bowing low. And I bring you frankincense, said the third king, rather dropping the gift onto Mary's feet. He then shuffled towards the side of the stage. Bow! came the disembodied voice from the wings. Bow! The third king looked perplexed. He stared around him, seemingly frozen to the spot. Jason! came the voice again. Bow! Bow! The little boy looked first at the audience and then at Mary. Woof! He barked. Woof! Woof! Gervais Finn was very familiar with his birthplace, South Yorkshire. Laurie Lee was equally familiar with his native area, Gloucestershire, and here he remembers Christmas as a child. Barney. For us boys in our village in the Cotswolds, it always started on a star-bright night, never pre-arranged but intuitively recognised. A few of us would wrap ourselves up in scarves and mufflers, fix lighted candles in jam jars and go through the streets calling out the rest of the gang. Come and carol bark in then! It was declaration, not a question. One by one they appeared, flapping their arms and stamping their feet. We were a ragged lot, but we had official status, for we were the boys of the village choir. And as a reward for the year of dutiful church-going, we'd earned the right to sing carols at all the big houses in the valley and collect our tribute. Now our band of musical footpads set off merrily through the crunching snow, swinging our lanterns on loops of string. We began with the squire while still in good voice, advancing in awe down his well-swept drive to the great house. The old man, wrapped in a rug, stood at the door and listened, weeping softly, as our Christmas trebles reminded him once more of the passing of time. After that regal visit, we hurried onward up the valley, calling at the houses of lesser gentry. Beneath frosted windows, in echoing stable yards, under great Gothic porches and in tapestried hallways, we sang. Eight voices, clear and sweet, ringing out through the winter's night. Hark the herald angels sing. Once again, we were the bearers of the miraculous tidings to house and farm, to the folk by the fire, the stamping beasts in their stalls. And at each house, when we'd finished... We were rewarded with handfuls of coppers, hot mince pies, tangerines, gifts as precious as gold or myrrh. Next day, it was Christmas Eve with preparations at a climax. The kitchen walls shone with reflected snow. Icicles curtained the steaming windows. As soon as we'd finished breakfast, the table was cleared for the ceremonial mixing of the pudding a formal ritual only, for Mother had thoroughly mixed it already. But now each of us had to stir it for luck. It stood rich and raw in its china basin, packed with currants, raisins, nutmeg, ginger, and other musky, indefinable spices. We each gave the mixture a solemn stir, made a secret wish, 
then took a long, hard lick at the spoon. I remember well that voluptuous taste of suet and oriental bazaars, together with a faint flavour of pudding cloth. Christmas in the country meant feasts and fires, a few brief days of excess, when even the poorest amongst us would confront the stern gods of winter with the bravest possible show of good living. Everybody was busy this morning, chopping wood, carrying logs, or sitting on the doorstep plucking ducks or geese. Now the time had come for us to go up to the woods and collect leaves for decorating the house. Among the black and bare trees, we shook the snow from the undergrowth with frost-red fingers, seeking the sharp-spiked holly, bunches of laurel and ivy, cold clusters of moon-pale mistletoe. With these, our sisters transformed the familiar kitchen into a grotto of shining leaves, an enchanted bower woven from twigs and branches sprinkled with scarlet berries. After tea, as darkness fell, we put on our coats and scarves and trooped off with Mother to the town several miles down the wind-whipped valley. We always left the buying of our presents to this eleventh hour as part of the season's dramatic crescendo, joining the rest of our neighbours who were all now heading for the shops to catch the last glitter of Christmas Eve. The tiny gaslit stores were gold caverns in the dusk, bursting with festive goods. We children gazed a while at the grander toy shops, those with stuffed tigers and life-size dolls, but ended up, as always, at Piper's Bazaar, the most magical place in town. In this glittering emporium were presents for all the family, rings, necklaces and brooches for a penny each, tiny tea sets and doll's house furniture, tin soldiers, cannons, paints and puzzles, Chinese lanterns and devil's masks. For my mother I bought the best in the shop, a brass-framed photograph of Lily Langtree for sixpence. Home again, with the oil lamps and candles lit, we stowed our presents away in the backs of cupboards or behind loose boards in the wash house. Later that night, a cousin who worked in the woods would leave a splendid Christmas tree at our door. We'd haul it inside, plant it in a bucket, and smother it with Chinese lanterns. Mysterious and sparkling, still dripping with melted snow, its feathery branches filling half the kitchen, the tree was our Christmas crown. Everything was now ready for tomorrow. There was nothing to do except go to bed, curl up in our blankets and wait, each with their long stocking hanging on the bedpost, empty. Would there be a flash of red in the window, a snow glint of beard and ermine, a whisper of sleigh bells on our rooftops as Father Christmas made his benevolent entrance? We suspended judgment and kept an open mind. These days a white Christmas is a pretty rare event. The last was in 2010. So what was Christmas weather like for our forefathers? Felicity Day writes in Country Life magazine... Between roughly 1550 and 1880, Britain was in the grip of what has become popularly known as the Little Ice Age, a period of intensely cold winters. Country Parson James Woodford's famous diaries are littered with complaints about the debilitating cold, both indoors and out. 
In the 1790s, he wrote that even the contents of the chamber pots froze indoors, as well as his household's milk, bread and meat, and it only got colder. Christmas Day of 1830 was bleak. It was minus 12 degrees centigrade at Greenwich. Snow drifts of 20 feet deep weren't uncommon, making roads completely impassable. A teenage Queen Victoria found it inconvenient. Writing on December the 27th, 1836, Snow very deep and very cold. I'm very much annoyed not to have been able to get out now for two days. For Dickens's contemporaries, the generation that created our modern Christmas, that is, the festive season was routinely snowy, generally bitterly cold, and often a considerable trial. But the White Christmas had found its way into literature long before A Christmas Carol took the market by storm in December 1843. In Jane Austen's Emma, her character set out on Christmas Eve in a flurry of snow to attend a party, only to bundle back into the carriages as soon as it starts to settle. Christmas weather, observes the amorous Mr Elton, quite seasonable. As the annual celebrations became steadily more commercialised, Retailers and manufacturers jumped on the snow-covered bandwagon. The sending of cards had taken off by the late 1870s and the white stuff became a big part of designers' arsenals. They deployed quaint village greens carpeted in snow, animals sheltering from snowstorms, even terrifying snowmen and skating frogs, all in the service of spreading Christmas cheer. Holiday window dressers also got in on the act. A Liverpool department store created a snow-filled Christmas fairyland for children in 1870, the forerunner to Santa's Grotto. Newspaper editorials seemed to become obsessed with snow. A few voices lamented the unwavering popularity of a white Christmas, warning that no misconception should exist as to its cost in disease and death among the poor. That was indeed true. Hypothermia was a merciless killer. Yet others whipped up excitement about a Christmas snowfall. In the Age of Empire, the Illustrated London News contemplated in 1876 what it was to have a Christmas without Britain's inclement weather, concluding that Christmas may be gone through as a duty under the tropics, but it's only in a land of snow and ice and pine trees, if they can be got, that a real Christmas can be celebrated. This was despite the fact that there were already acknowledgements that the climate was changing. Snow was no longer to be expected at Christmas, but to be hoped for. A snippet from the Penny Illustrated paper feels as if it could have been written at any time this century. We're most of us fond of talking about seasonable weather, and if we have not altogether left off expecting ice and snow, look out wistfully on a Christmas morning. Cold and snowy Christmas weather did persist regularly right up until the mid-1890s, when a run of milder winters took over. The Little Ice Age might have thawed, but snow remained steadfastly linked to the festive season, an integral part of the Christmas that was delivered ready-wrapped by the Victorians to their 21st century descendants. We're still perfectly happy to dream of a white Christmas, except we'll have it without the freezing foodstuffs or impassable snowdrifts, please. Thank you, Catherine. Going back even further in history, Christmas could be even bleaker and not necessarily because of the weather. John Evelyn, 
is remembered as a diarist and a founder member of the Royal Society. His diary reminds us that Christmas celebrations were banned during the rule of Oliver Cromwell as Lord Protector. Their reasoning was that it was not mentioned in the Bible and was just an excuse for drunkenness and riotous behaviour. There were stiff penalties for disobeying the new law, as Christine discovered from John Evelyn's diary entry for Christmas Day 1657. I went with my wife to London to celebrate Christmas Day, Mr Gunning preaching in Exeter Chapel on Micah chapter 7. Sermon ended, as he was giving us the Holy Sacrament, the chapel was surrounded with soldiers. These wretched miscreants held their muskets against us as we came up to receive the sacred elements, as if they would have shot us at the altar, but yet suffering us to finish the office of communion, as perhaps it was not in their instructions what they should do in case they found us in that action. All the communicants and assembly were kept prisoners by them, some in the house, others carried away. It fell to my share to be confined to a room in the house, where yet were permitted to dine with the master of it, the Countess of Dorset, Lady Halton and some others of quality who invited me. In the afternoon came Colonel Wally, Gough and others from Whitehall to examine us one by one, and some they committed to prison. When I came before them, they took my name and abode and examined me why, contrary to an ordinance made that none should any longer observe the superstitious time of the nativity, I durst offend, and particularly be at common prayer, which they told me was but the mass in English, and particularly to pray for Charles Stuart, for which we had no scripture. I told them we did not pray for Charles Stuart, but for all Christian kings, princes and governors. They replied in so doing we prayed for the King of Spain too, who was their enemy and a papist. They continued with other frivolous and ensnaring questions with much threatening, but finding no cause to detain me longer, with much pity of my ignorance, they dismissed me. These were men of high flight and above ordinances and spoke spiteful things of our blessed Lord's nativity. So I got home late the next day. Blessed be God. Christmas, not always a happy time. As the new owners of Dinchope Hall in Shropshire find out in our Christmas ghost story. What's this? You don't normally let me have a cooked breakfast. Special day, Arthur. Special? Ah, of course. Would Mr Day care to take a seat, birthday boy? Thank you, Mrs Day. Wow, kidneys even. And this is for you. Oh, whatever is it? If you open it, you might find out. For my 60th birthday, my wife Agnes gave me what can only be described as a lethal weapon. Oh, my goodness, it's it's beautiful. Well, every morning at breakfast for the last 30 years, I've watched you struggle to open your mail with just your fingers. I don't know how anyone can make such a hash of it. 
It's amazing that you can read the letters you get. They're so mangled when you finally wrench them from their envelopes. It's, it's, it's the way that I've always... So I thought I'd get you a proper letter opener. Well, it's, it's fabulous. But this isn't just a proper letter opener. This is a work of art and antiquity. I mean, is it even actually a letter opener? It looks like... Well, it, it is, isn't it? A dagger. Ceremonial, the man said. It's not sharp. Well, it's not pointed. Mm. No, the end's flattened, like, like a blunt chisel. So you can't stab yourself to death when you open the electricity bill, principally? Mm, there's an inscription. Can't really make it out. Uh, an A, then a D. Uh... The man at Taylor's did tell me what it says. It sounded a bit like my name. Or Agnes? Hmm, Day. Oh. There's an engraving on the handle. A, a, a goat or something. It opens. What opens? The pommel, the round bit on the end where the engraving is. It rotates. It's a lid. Oh, like this. Oh, I see. <laughs> You've put something in here, haven't you? Might have. Sorry about the paper. It's what I use for shopping lists. Oh, bless you. Inside the secret compartment was a tiny piece of paper torn from an exercise book with just two words written on it. Happy birthday. I'll go. In the evening, Aggie and I were getting ready to go out when we had a visitor. Mr Day? Vicar? Oh, come in. I hope I'm not disturbing your evening. No, not at all. We are going out in a little while, though. A birthday dinner. Ah, yes, Mr Day. That's why I'm here. I brought you a small birthday card and a church calendar for next year, like I always do for new parishioners. Oh. Many happy returns and welcome to Dinship Hall. Well, thank you, Vicar. How did you know it was my birthday? I met your wife in the village a few days ago, coming out of Taylor's Antiques. She had just bought you a most mysterious present, she said. Aggie! Aggie, it's the vicar! Hello, vicar. I can't come down. I'm not decent. She's getting ready. Can I interest you in a glass of something? It is my birthday. That's very kind, Mr Day. A small sherry, perhaps? Well, I don't know about mysterious, but it certainly is a very beautiful present. On the mantelpiece, look, on top of the tailor's bag. Oh, my, that is something. 16th century reliquary dagger. Tailors do have some fascinating stuff in sometimes. Reliquary dagger? Uh, yes, there's a secret compartment. Compartment in the handle, yes, I know. Anything in it? The compartment? Oh, yes. Oh? My wife hid a note in it for me. A note? Yes, it, it said, Happy Birthday. Ah, of course. N nothing else? No, I, I don't think mm, so. Pity. How do you mean? It's called a reliquary dagger from its use in old religious ceremonies. Oh. The dagger's part in the ritual was made much more potent by the inclusion of a religious relic in the handle. A relic? Yes, you know, a bit of a saint. Hair, tooth, bit of skin. Ugh, how gruesome. <laughs> Very often, and I think so in your case, they would have kept a small wax tablet in here. Oh? You see the inscription on the lid? Yes, we couldn't read it, but the man at Taylor said it was my wife's name. Oh, really? And why has it got a picture of a goat? That's a lamb's head. Oh. Y your wife's name, you say? Yes, Agnes Day. <laughs> yes, of course. 
Agnus Dei, the Lamb of God. Oh, right. The wax tablet they kept in here would also have had a lamb's head on it. Just a talisman, you understand. But very rare to find these days, being made of wax. And 400 years old. I told her she shouldn't have bought me such an extravagant present, though she insists it was a bargain. Only because it's missing its relic, I should think. No, it's a lovely piece, though were it complete with its tablet, it would be worth a great deal more. Vicar! Uh, Mrs Day! We meet again. You inspecting my husband's new letter opener? Admiring it, Mrs Day. A letter opener. Good use. Perfect for opening birthday cards, seems to me. Anyway, I must be off. I can see you're ready to go out. I hope you have the most splendid evening. And a very happy birthday to you, Mr Day. Have you emerged for a coffee? Um, yes, sh sure. Very strange thing just happened. What's that? I was in the study opening the mail. Well, I was going to open the mail. I took that lovely new opener to do it. About time. You've had it two weeks. Yes, I'm sorry. I've been keeping it on the mantel shelf so I can gaze lovingly at it. You were in your study? Oh, yes. I'd not realised how cold it can get in there. And the fire wouldn't come on. Oh, are we out of gas? Well, that's what I thought. So I went to the bottles to check. There's no problem. We've got plenty. Maybe a blockage somehow. Let's get Greenfields to look at Yes, but when I went back in, the gas was on. Not lit, just pumping out gas. Stacked to high heaven. God! Oh, it's all right. I, I turned it off. Opened the window, waited for it to escape. It's OK now. And then I lit it. And it's fine. You be careful. I'll ring Greenfields. But the oddest thing. I went to open the mail... And the letter opener had vanished. That's not odd. We know what your looking's like. Yes, but I'd only just put it down on the desk when I came in. I hadn't touched it. Anyway, I did find it eventually. Oh, so, end of mystery. It was in the fireplace. Blown off the desk when you had the window open. Blown off? You know how heavy that dagger is. Can't have blown off. A couple of weeks later, I was in the study reading a letter from a client when I heard a scraping sound and a clatter. Oh. You'll not go to the ball until you've picked up all the lentils. <laughs> Actually, Arthur, what are you doing down there in the hearth? The letter opener. I was using it. I, I put it down on the desk there by the envelopes. I heard a noise and the next thing I knew it was, it was in the hearth again. Just like last time. Clumsy. Well, I, I didn't touch it. It was on the desk, and then it wasn't. I think you need some lunch. Come in. Yes, yes, in a moment. I'll, um, I'll just tidy up here. I picked up the opener and put it back on the desk. Almost immediately, the gas fire went out and a cold draught ran through the room. I glanced at the window, but it was closed. As I looked back toward the desk, I was sure I saw the dagger swivel a little, quite on its own, like a compass needle, and then, completely untouched, it sort of 
flipped across the desk and landed back down in the hearth. Haggy, come and look. What is it? The opener. Back in the hearth, see? I see it. I saw it move. It was on the desk and then it flew off into the fireplace. I can smell gas. Turn it off, quick. I'll open the window. It was just like before. I can't open it. It's too stiff. Oh, here, let me. That gas fire's got to go. I'm ringing Greenfields. Right. Um, the opener, where, where is it? It was in the hearth. Yes. Yes, it was. You know, we searched that room for a good 15 minutes, but the dagger, nowhere to be seen. How's it going, Mr Greenfield? Oh, we've got her out, Mr Day. That's an old one and no mistake. Fire like that should have been replaced years ago. Well, we've only been here a couple of months. Oh, that's right, so you have. Well, you was lucky we caught it before something terrible happened. I'm not completely sure it didn't. Still, the new one will not only be much safer, but a lot more efficient too, I'm sure. Oh, yes, Mr Day, it certainly will. But I'm afraid I can't fit it today. Oh, why not? It's your nozzles, you see. They're designed for natural gas. And with you being on propane, likely... Well, they won't work, see? I need a complete set of nozzles for propane. And for this model, well, it'll be a week before I can get hold of them. And then there's Christmas, of course. Of course. It's just so cold in here. Well, you could use an electric. You got an electric heater? Yes. Yes, in the garage. Well, there you go. I'll be in touch when I've got the parts... Won't be till New Year, though. No. Oh, well. Thank you, anyway. Hey, one thing, Mr Day. That hearth is, is quite badly cracked, you know. Cracked? Yes, here, see. I've never noticed that before. It's not just cracked, it's out of alignment. If you run your hand over it, you can feel there's a step. That means one half of it's sunk or, or lifted. Suggests a problem with the ground underneath. Maybe even the foundations. You want to get that checked out by a builder. <laughs> That's not likely to happen this side of Christmas either, is it? Oh, I wouldn't panic, Mr Day. These things move pretty slowly. How old's this house? 400 year? More. <laughs> I don't suppose another few days will make much difference. And so it was left. I managed perfectly well with the electric heater, turned up high. It was quite cosy. On Christmas Eve, I was wrapping some last-minute presents for Aggie. Well, most of my Christmas gifts are last-minute. When I heard an unfamiliar noise. It was coming from the fireplace. It wasn't a mouse. It was metallic, like metal scraping against stone. I bent down close to the hearth to find out what was causing it. And I could see that the crack was wider now. I could just get my finger in it. As I traced its contour, I gave an involuntary powerful shiver, even though the electric heater was full on. Very nice, ladies and gentlemen. For the volunteers, Mrs. Day. Here we are. Thank you. You're welcome. Happy Christmas. Merry Christmas. Yes, Merry Christmas. Well, that was nice. I'm glad we moved to the country. 
real carol singers at the door, which, I suggest, Mrs Day, might conclude Christmas Eve for another year. Time for an early night, perhaps. Did you hear that? Oh, no more carol singers, surely. Go and tell them that we've given and we're in bed. Happy Christmas and go away. What time is it? Oh, oh, for heaven's sake, it's midnight. What on earth are they thinking of? Perhaps if we ignore them, they'll lose interest and go home. Oh. Oh, it's no good. Waking people at this time on Christmas Eve? I'm going to have a word. Be nice with them, Arthur. I went downstairs, but the singing wasn't coming from the front door. It seemed to emanate from the study. And there was a flickering light under the study door. Fire. Aggie, fire extinguisher, now! I ran into the kitchen to get the fire blanket as well, and we approached the study door together. I reached for the knob, but it burnt my hand. I grabbed the fire extinguisher from Maggie and batted at the door. I called the fire brigade. The door gave way and... nothing. No singing. No fire. In fact, the room was so cold that a glass of water that I'd left on my desk had frozen solid. Okay, Agnes, stand them down. We don't need the fire brigade. We need the vicar. Another year, I'd suggest that you'd heard singing from the church, Mr Day, seeing as you live so close. But we didn't celebrate Midnight Mass at St Oswald's last night. This year was the turn of St David's in Aston, and that's 15 miles away. So what did we hear? I think, I think maybe that it was indeed a Midnight Mass that you heard, but a Catholic Mass, and not from here, or rather not from now. Not from now? When you next pop into the church, Mrs Day... Oh, thank you. You may spot a pamphlet entitled Historic Buildings of the Ray. It's only a couple of pounds, very good value, a local author. Dinship Hall is mentioned, you know. You'd find it very interesting. It was owned originally by the Vernold family, back in the 1500s. The Vernolds were Catholic, and in those days, life was very difficult for Catholics. There were gangs of priest hunters, whose job it was to help rid the country of them. One of the priest hunters in this area, a nasty piece of work called William Rockforth, he knew the Vernolds were Catholic and vowed to punish them severely if he could catch them in the act of worship. The Vernolds did actually have a priest living with them. Families like the Vernolds often did. But they would have claimed that he was a gardener or a distant cousin, perhaps, and he may well have been, for he was also a Catholic priest and conducted secret masses for the family and their closest friends in the chapel. That is to say, in your study, Mr Day. In my study? Really? Rockforth had his informers. 
and at midnight on Christmas Eve in 1587 it was, the priest was conducting midnight mass in your study when Rockforth's gang burst into the house. It's thought that the priest, Father Francis Jolian, fled and left the country. He was never seen again. Rockforth was so incensed by his failure to catch Jolian that he murdered the entire Vernold family and their servants that same night here in this house. It became known locally as the Christmas Midnight Massacre. How did the priest escape? Nobody can tell, Mrs Day. Least of all the Vernolds, may they rest in peace. But you are not the first to have heard mass being sung here in Dinship Hall on Christmas Eve, when there's been no one here to sing it. And my study was their chapel? Well, it doesn't look like a chapel. How can you tell? I'll show you. I'm not ashamed to admit that I haven't dared go into that room since last night. Too frightened. And I was sure the place was going up in flames. What was all that about? Your study, Mr Day, I think looked very different in 1587. It wasn't wood-panelled as it is now. These walls, I believe, they were just plain stone. More like a chapel. Indeed. It would have had a table over there to serve as an altar, and I suppose a cupboard for wine and so on. Now, you have to understand that, despite the illegality of Catholicism, Murdering an entire household for it was still a crime, and Rockforth tried to cover up his deeds by setting light to the house, starting in the chapel. Ah! He let it be thought later that a candle perhaps had been upset during a mass, so it was the Catholic's own fault, and that that led to the fire. The house survived, though? Yes. It wasn't badly damaged, but it lay empty for many years. It wasn't taken over until the 1600s. The panelling dates from that time, though if you stand here by the door and look above the panelling opposite, you can still see some of the original stone. Ah, yes. Blackened, quite possibly, by Rockforth's fire. You can perhaps make out a carving in the middle there. Do you see it? Oh, gosh, yes. You can only see it from this angle. It looks like, well, it's, it's that lamb again, isn't it? Like the one on my letter opener. Very important symbol, Mr Day, and marks this room out as a place of worship. Now, as we approach the fireplace... Oh, what's going on here? In front of the fireplace, there was now a gaping hole in the floor. Somehow, the hearthstone had been split clean in two. The front half lifted now, on its edge and teetering precariously by the side of the void. Uh, you might want to get that fixed, Mr Day. I'm sorry, Vicar. It wasn't like that before last night. It was cracked, yes, but not collapsing. I can't think how on earth... It's a little dangerous. Should we shift it back into place, do you think? I'll give you a hand. Well, yes, thank you, Vicar. If you can take that corner, I'll see if I can just slide it... Ah! Ah! Mr Day, Mr Day, are you all right? I, I'm fine, Vicar. Vicar, there's a candle on the mantel shelf. Could you light it for me and, and, and pass it down? Surely. Here, Mr Day, take this. In the flickering light of the candle, I could see that the hole into which I had just fallen was about four feet deep and stretched back behind the rear of the fireplace for roughly the length of a man. 
This was Dinship Hall's undocumented priest hole, built by the Vernold family in case of an anti-Catholic raid. Unopenable from the inside, it had been sealed for the last 400 years, ever since the massacre of the only people who knew of its existence. On the dusty floor lay a silver incensor, blackened with age, wrapped in the remains of an ancient altar cloth, in the corner by my feet, partly clothed in what had once been the robe of a Roman Catholic priest, a human skeleton gripped in its bony hand a dagger, a dagger with an engraving of a lamb's head on the pommel, its chisel-ended blade still partly embedded in a deep channel freshly scratched in the stonework of the accidental tomb. I leaned forward and prized the unique but familiar object from the skeletal grasp and brought it near to the candle. Just as I had two months before, I turned the pommel and peered into the secret compartment. Vicar, is this the sort of thing you were telling me about? Inside the compartment now was a circular wax tablet embossed with a lamb's head bearing the inscription Agnus Dei, together with a scrap of paper torn from an exercise book. On the paper were written just two words. Thank you. Agnus Dei was written by John Stambury and was directed in our studio here by John Plush. Arthur was played by Martin Bourne, Aggie by Pauline Beale, The Vicar by Michael Dyer and The Heating Engineer, Mr Greenfield, by our own Stephen Buckley. The nozzles never showed up, by the way. <laughs> well, that's about it for this Christmas edition of Look Here. Apart from this piece, written from the heart by Phil Lee on the subject of the best Christmas ever. Phil. Let's start with the spirit of Christmas past. If we look at Ebenezer Scrooge, then his best ever was one from his apprenticeship, from his long-forgotten past. Its most attractive elements were warmth, good food, sound friends, music, dancing, a room decorated with holly and ivy, and a genial host in Mr Fezziwig. In other words, Dickens' own ideals, the very things that Bob Cratchit and his family had been lacking at Christmas until Scrooge's Reformation. For Laurie Lee, insider with Rosie, Christmas as a child was about carols singing around a village in the snow, roast apples and hot mince pies, smells and sounds and tastes. The past and Christmas are natural bedfellows for many, tied up with the emotional ribbons and bows of nostalgia and stuck together with memory. And yet, both of these tales relate to Christmas Eve, and so much of our enjoyment, like that of Dickens and Lee, lies in anticipation, in expectation. Do we not also recall that as children we might have dreamt of what we would see in our stockings? A pillowcase in our house, shocking materialist. Pardon me, I digress. We were imagining Christmas Day, what we would eat, who would visit, where we'd go for our Boxing Day walk. 
that begins, doesn't it, to look like Christmas yet to come. Here's a thing. I wince when school leavers are told, enjoy university, they'll be the best years of your life. Best years over by the age of 21? How awful. Best Christmas is already over, back in our childhood. Doesn't have to be. Let's enjoy the memory but retain our optimism, shall we? How about the best Christmas ever being the next one, the spirit of Christmas yet to come? Hard to believe? What, Phil, you may say, do call me Phil because people only use Philip when they're about to give me a hard time. What, Phil, about the cost of living, uncertainty in government, the war in Ukraine, the continuing degradation of our environment? Can that possibly be the backdrop to a happy Christmas? Yes, it can. If we set all that aside for the moment, even Scrooge could lay aside the toxic mess that his life had become and enjoy Christmas by changing his focus and his priorities, admittedly via some fairly scary ghostly counselling. Can we set our own ambitions, whatever they might be, I wonder, and do the same? We can envisage things that we can make happen, fulfilling things that will create memories for us. Let's aim to make the best ever Christmas the next Christmas, the Christmas yet to come. It would be great to know that the best was always before us rather than behind. Our future rather than our past. From Phil, Catherine and Jane. From Christine, Barney and Evelyn. From Barry Hurd, Alan and Kate. Carol Hartle and her fellow administrators. From our producer, John Plush. From me, Stephen Buckley. And from me, Vonya Carlton. Thank you for listening and we wish you a very... Happy Happy Christmas. Christmas!